Good morning. Good to see everyone. We have a, a lot of material to go through, so why don't you grab your Bibles and the handout sheet that was given to you at the front door. And also, if you are a note taker, you might want to grab a pen or uh, I don't know if you remember these. These are called pencils. You also can use a, a pencil if you have like a pencil sharpener. That would be awesome. Uh, you can use a pencil as well. We have a lot of stuff. We are in the year of wisdom in 2018. We're going to be kicking off our brand new series in the book of Job called the Knowing God series. So we are in part one of that. Now, in description of this series, I wrote down the theme and I wanted to make sure it was consistent through all four services. So I'm going to read it to you. Just kind of the idea of what are we trying to get to in these eight parts of the book of Job? Here's my thoughts. God is not who we think he is. Dealing with God isn't like we suppose. The relationship is true and real and personal. However, we are not the main character. We are side characters in the grand novel. We are bit parts in the grand narrative. We are created and he is the creator. We need to fit back into our role and identity in order to receive from God what he has for us and to live rightly in the world that he designed for us. If we think we are God, all hell breaks loose. Amen? Amen. So what we're going to do is we're going to dive into the book of Job, and I, I kind of tore it apart, right? So I took all the 42 chapters, uh, some out of Job, I pulled them all apart and put them back together in eight pieces. We're going to go through one piece each week, and we're going to begin with a recap of the entire book. Now, if you like to take notes, you might want to jot this down, uh, thebibleproject.com, thebibleproject.com. There is a group up in Portland, Oregon. They work with uh, Western Seminary, which is where I got my Master's of Divinity. And there's a group and a team of men and women that are animators and theologians. And what they did was put together a series on YouTube. It's all free, and there's a series on YouTube called the Scripture Reading Series. All you do is go into the YouTube banner and type in the book of Job. It'll probably be the first or second thing to come up. And here's what it is. It is absolutely brilliant. It is a recap of the entire book in 11 minutes, and they draw it while they're talking about it. And it is an animated design of the entire book, and it shows you the full chapters and how it's laid out and all the different characters. It's super fun. So you may want to do that. Now, instead of playing that, I'm going to follow the same structure, and I'm going to try to do it in 10 minutes. Now, that means I'm going to try to beat them out because I'm prideful. Uh, and uh, it's probably not going to happen, but that's all right. I'm just trying to let you know what's going on with me. Since you are my therapist, I appreciate that. Thank you for being here. So I'm going to go through and recap. So if you need to fall asleep this morning, uh, make sure that you're awake for the next 10 minutes and then night-night. All right? It's, uh, it all work out. We'll figure it out. Here we go. You ready? The story of Job is relatively simple. There is a prologue intro. There's an epilogue at the end. In between is dense Hebrew poetry, and it is conversations of all the different characters. The author is completely anonymous. 
No one knows who wrote it. It is the most ancient book in the Bible, as far as we can tell. It is written in Hebrew, but it is not the Hebrew that we are used to. It is an ancient form of Hebrew. It is not set in any particular period of history, but there is a guess that he predates Abraham. He was what we would call a desert prince. We also don't know too much about the location, but it all takes place in a faraway land, nowhere close to Israel, called Uz, U-Z, all right? So it begins with Job, an awesome guy. We're going to spend the majority of our morning talking about who he is and why he was on God's radar. Begins with Job, and then right after we meet him, we are transported into the heavenlies where God is having a staff meeting. In that staff meeting, he has all his angels and all his heavenly figures coming before him and telling what's going on around the world. God brings up Job. Be very clear in this book. It was God's idea to bring up Job. Have you considered my servant Job? Steps up a figure by the name of the Satan or the Satan. It means the accuser. So Satan steps forward and he says, the only reason that Job likes you is you give him cool stuff. The only reason anybody serves you is because you're nice to them. And God said, I don't think that's true. And Satan said, well, I think that's true. And they said, uh, 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 right? Now I added that part. That's not in the Bible. <laughs> Satan said, let me at him. And God said, all right. Satan comes in and wipes him out completely. He takes away all of his children takes away all of his wealth, takes away all of his health, and he is left in a pile of tears. That's pretty stunning, and we think immediately, oh, wow, this is a book that is set up to tell us why innocent people suffer. No, it's not. This book will not answer that question at any given point. It does, however, bring up the question of justice in the universe. Does God run this universe according to a system of strict justice as we describe it? Well, I don't know. Here we go. We're going to talk about that. Three friends show up to Job in his sadness. Their names are Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Please do not name your children any one of those three. Those are horrific. They are all non-Israelites. They represent the best wisdom of the ancient Near East. They're going to come in and they're going to comment on his situation. The pattern in the book is simple. Job talks, a friend talks, and then Job responds, then another friend talks, and it goes back and forth and back and forth for three cycles. That's, they all are focusing on three key questions. Is God just? Does he run the universe in a just fashion? And what explains Job's suffering? But everyone is operating off one major principle. Not only that they're all wise enough to know what's going on, but that if you do good, good stuff will happen to you. If you're stupid or do bad, bad things will happen to you. They all believe that. Job believes that. The guys believe that. Everybody believes that. But then Job says, guys, the system's messed up. Something's wrong. 
I'm innocent. And then he goes into a complete crazy cycle of falling apart on God. He lashes out at God. At first, he tries to be cool. At first, he's like, God gives, God takes away. And you're like, wow, that's pretty impressive. As his sorrow grows and his difficulty increases, he starts to say, God, I feel like you're a bully. God, I feel like not only are you unjust, I wonder if you're not behind all the injustice in the world. And he starts lashing out. It is because he is so hurt and so confused. Now, at that point, the friends argue against him and they say, Job, you're looking at it wrong. God always is nice to good people. You somehow have messed up. You're missing it. And they start inventing ways that he must have sinned. So that's why all this is happening to him. Job is freaking out, says, I don't even want to deal with you guys anymore. I want to hear from God himself. And he screams at God, explain yourself. At that moment, a fourth friend shows up. His name is Elihu. He comes up, he's younger than everybody else. And that's important only because he says, guys, I've been listening to you. You're all older than me, so I give you deference. All I'm hearing from you is not wise enough. Yes, I agree. Good things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people. I totally agree with that. However, you might be missing the fact that also there's things in the future. Maybe God is causing suffering because you're about to sin. Maybe God is causes you suffering because he's trying to save you from something in the future. Regardless, Job, you're out of line. You never have the right to attack God. Job doesn't even respond to this guy. Job is so upset and so angry, he doesn't want to get into any more debates. He said, I just want to hear from God. Chapter 38. We have now gone through the entire book. We are now at chapter 38, and God shows up. God shows up in a whirlwind, and he says, Job, come here for a second. I want to show you something. And he takes him on a virtual tour of the universe. He starts showing him how he founded the world, how he made the stars, how he sustains the universe. Hey, this is how I birth baby deer. This is how I feed donkeys. This is how I handle the rain cycles. He starts showing him things that blows Job's mind. What is his point? Buddy, you have no idea what you're talking about. I run things you can't even imagine. So are you telling me that you want to run the universe? Great, here you go. Here's my card. You try to run it one day. And you try to play this justice game, right? Everyone that does good, you immediately give them a treat. Everyone that does bad, you slap them down. Go ahead, try to run that and see how your world works. It doesn't work like that. It is way more complex. You keep trying to put it in clean categories in your own understanding. You keep trying to say it's black and white. It's not. It is very, very complex. And then God starts focusing on two major animals. This is very bizarre. You're like, I don't understand what you're doing. He starts talking about the behemoth and Leviathan. These are key animals. Now, everyone's going to say they're only mythological creatures, or they're going to say they were a hippo and a crocodile. I hate that argument, by the way. Because one of the descriptions for the behemoth of the hippo is that it has a tail like a cedar tree. Have you ever seen a hippo's tail? It is not a cedar tree. Anyway, that's not the point. 
little pet peeve there for me. Uh, and by the way, Leviathan spits fire, the last crocodile that spit fire, I ran away from. So that, that, that doesn't really happen, right? So here's what he said. These two animals are representative of something. It says this, they are symbols of disorder and danger in God's world. They are not evil. As a matter of fact, I'm very proud of them, but they are not safe either. My world is amazing and good, but it is not perfect and not always safe it has order and beauty but it is wild and dangerous just like these creatures why is there suffering in this world god never says why but he says it's complex and at this stage of the universe it is not designed to prevent suffering you're gonna have to trust me because i'm a good god how does job respond i'm sorry I didn't see it. He falls down before God in humility and repentance. And then God turns to his friends and says, you're all wrong. How dare you talk to this guy like that? What you have said about me is incorrect. Then he says something super shocking. Job has spoken of me what is right. Now, this is weird because didn't Job call him a bully? Didn't Job say things like, I don't get it. I think maybe you're behind injustice. I don't. Here's the point. God said, Job's my man. That's my child. He's allowed to come at me screaming and kicking and yelling. He's allowed to process with me. He's allowed to fall apart on me. I don't judge him for that. I know what I made. I made a human being. And this guy is struggling, but whenever he doesn't understand, he runs towards me, not away from me. That's how you process pain and confusion. He says to his friends, unless Job prays for you, I'm not letting you off the hook. Job has to pray for you. Job prays for them. The book ends with Job getting twice the amount of things that he got before. He gets his kids back and then he gets more wealth and more this and more that. It is not a reward for good behavior. Job never was wealthy in the first place because of good behavior. He was wealthy because of the grace of God. God gave him a present, and at the end, he gives him another present to show, listen, kid, I know things are hard, but I do truly want the best for you. And with that, the book of Job closes. Amen? All right, there you go. Now you can go night-night. Praise the Lord. All right, all right. Okay, so having had all of that in mind, that's the entire book, we are now going to chop it up into eight parts and focus on individual pieces. We can leave the whole apart going, what's it all about? You know. So let's dive into the intricacies. What was Job like and why was he on God's radar? We now want to study character holiness, righteousness, integrity, things like that. The fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you that you got at the front door is this. If we aren't the good guys, who are? If we aren't the good guys, who are? Y'all, we are called to be the good guys. Can we agree on that? We are called to be the good guys. It is very tempting to feel like it doesn't matter how we live, right? I mean, you're going through day to day and who cares whether you gossip or not? It's not like it is rocking the universe. 
who cares whether or not that you're nice to this person and not nice to that person? Is it really that big of a deal? So that we fall into three different traps to think it doesn't matter how I live. That first one is, as I was explaining, what difference do I make? What difference do I make? Am I really a game changer? Listen, I'm not a pastor up in front of everybody. I'm not doing this. Does it matter whether or not I'm living super hardcore or not? I'm going to tell you it does matter. But number two, we fall into the idea that grace covers it anyway. Have you ever know it fallen into that trap? Right? Grace covers it anyway. Man, Jesus Christ died on the cross. I'm his child. It doesn't matter. I can't sin out. So I'm good. Do you understand how insulting that is to God? We tend to think that we are thanking Jesus for something he did over 2,000 years ago. Let me correct that. You are only alive by the grace of God right now. You're thanking God for what he's doing right this very moment. He is consistently lavishing gifts upon you. And when you say, I want nothing to do with you, that is a slap in the face, right? The third trap that we fall into is what I call the death of heroes trap. The death of heroes, here's the point. No one's living out loud consistently the right way, so it feels like, why should I bother trying? Have you noticed that? Man, all the other Christians that I know, they're not trying super hard and killing it. So what does it matter for me? And we shrink down to the mediocrity of everyone else. We no longer have those superheroes of the faith that are saying it matters how I live every day. I'm proud of living for the Lord and I'm living out loud and you know that I'm all about Jesus. I'm not uptight. I'm not legalistic. I'm just so in love with Jesus. I don't want to be focused on anything else but him. What happened to those heroes? The problem is, you're supposed to be that hero. You keep looking around to try to match yourself up against the rest of us. You understand that Jesus is always the standard? And he's never changed. He's still just as cool as he always was. You don't match yourself up against me. You match yourself up against Jesus. That is our role model. Does it matter how we live? It does. Why? You can write this down. Jesus didn't die for mediocrity and apathy. Jesus didn't die for mediocrity and apathy. That is not the point. We think that we just need to get by. Incorrect. We need to live at true victory and max freedom and max power. Why? That's what Jesus died for. He didn't send us the Holy Spirit for no reason. He has given us more than we need for life and godliness. Amen? Amen. All right. Now, here's the other reason why it matters why we live rightly, that we're the good guys. Jesus was walking on the seashore and walking around in some of the different places, preaching and teaching. He comes upon these crowds and it says, and he had compassion for they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. How are you viewing the world today? You jealous of them? You in competition with them? Because here's how Jesus sees them. Harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. You know what that means? It means we need a lot less enemies and a lot more loved ones. 
You write that down. We need a lot less enemies and a lot more loved ones. Why? Because they're already hurting and we are the solution. The church is the salt and light. We are the healers. We are the presence of the body of Christ. We are the Holy Spirit indwelt. We are the balm to their burn. We are the ones to make their life better. It's why we're here. Does it matter how we live? Yeah, it matters how we live. The world is thrashed. And they need someone to come in and bring healing and hope. That is us, y'all. We need to be those people. I entitled today's message, A Man Like No Other. Why do I say that? Now, when I get done with the sermon, you're all going to go, man, Job's pretty awesome. But I, I'm not saying that Job is awesome because I think he's awesome. I say he's awesome because God says he's awesome. How do I know that? Because in Ezekiel chapter 14, God says twice this phrase. If I come against a sinning nation to bring judgment, even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were there, they couldn't save the country with their righteousness. They would only save themselves. Now, why is that so cool? If God looks over all people that have existed ever and you're in his top three, you're awesome. Can we agree? I mean, God calls you out. Three people really names you by name? You're awesome. Noah, Daniel, Job. He said, if those guys, the best of the best. I got a question for you. Are you on God's short list or on Satan's speed dial? You on God's short list or on Satan's speed dial? If either one of them need to get something done, are they calling you? Does God call up and go, listen, I need revival. You know who I'm calling? That woman right there. Or is Satan going, man, you know what I need is a little bit more gossip and division. I know exactly who I can ping. I can call them right now. They'll get it started, right? You on God's short list or Satan's speed dial? I believe that I want God to be proud of me, right? I want God to look out and go, have you considered my servant Lance? And you're like, I don't want to do that because those people get blown up, right? That's not the point of the story, right? Here's the other thing, is that in James 5, 7, it says, Job is the pinnacle of patience. What is the one thing that this modern day generation doesn't have? <laughs> patience. How do we know that? Because I was just taking my mom to an eye appointment and I had to run up and get something for her and I hit the elevator close button and it took too long. Really? Were those 23 seconds way too long for me to wait? Everything in me stopped me from hitting it again. You know how you do that? You all click, 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 click. And you're like, why are you hitting it so much? It knows what you just asked it to do. It's like, you need to mellow out is really the problem here, yeah? I mean, anytime you're at a stoplight, that's time for 30-second changes. And you're like, come on, come on, come on. Something's wrong with us is all I'm trying to tell you, right? All right, so that's what other people say about Job. What does the book say about Job? This is where you turn to Job chapter 1, verse 1. Job chapter 1, verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless 
and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. That's ten kids, if my math is correct. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. All right, what does it mean, greatest? It means he was the biggest, baddest, coolest guy, most wealthy. Everybody knew who he was. He was kind of the desert prince, right? That's the idea. But look at this weird story. Verse 4. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. In other words, they would party. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. He would go through a process of making them holy. He would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of all of his children. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned. I don't know that, but maybe, and curse God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. What a cool dad. What does he do? Man, I intercede for my kids every day because I have no idea what's going on with them. I have no idea if they sinned or not. Doesn't matter. I'm going to make sure that they are always set apart as holy for God. What an incredible man. It didn't benefit him at all, did it? I mean, really? Yeah, you could say, yeah, I mean, long term, you care about your kids. But he's sacrificing stuff all the time. He's losing that his family might be built up. He is unselfish. Don't you agree it's time for unselfish heroes to rise again? Y'all, I am so sick of rich tycoons that got there through selfishness being heralded as our heroes. That is driving me crazy. I don't think that's cool. Tell you what, coolest person ever lived on this planet, Jesus Christ. He is my absolute hero. I want to be just like him. I want to look like him. I think I'm going to start wearing a robe. I don't even know what he wore, right? I can't grow facial hair, so we, you know, I got a problem there. But I did have long hair at one point, so we have that in common. Fantastic. Here's my point. My point is that we follow a leader who has set the very hallmark of sacrifice. When you see true sacrifice, even the world has to take notice. Why do, what do I mean? I mean on 9-11, the the fire department and the police department ran into burning buildings. The whole world knew that's cool. Y'all, the church should have the corner market on cool. Nobody should out-sacrifice us. We should be the ones standing in the gap for everybody else. We should be the ones able to sacrifice to save other people's lives. We should be the ones setting the tone on what's cool. And it doesn't have to do with somebody running business so well and cutting everybody else out that they have the most money. That is not cool. Y'all following me? Man, we've got to be different. We've got to learn to live the sacrifice. Now, that's what the author says about Job. Here, for the rest of our time, is what Job says about Job as he describes himself. 
And this is where we begin to learn about his internal thinking. Turn with me to Job chapter 27, verse 1. Job 27, verse 1. Says this. And Job again took up his discourse, and he said, As God lives, who has taken away my right, and the Almighty who has made my soul bitter, as long as my breath is in me and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils, my lips will not speak falsehood and my tongue will not utter deceit. Far be it from me to say that you are right, my friends. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. I hold fast my righteousness and will not let it go. My heart does not reproach me for any of my days. Now you look and you go, dang, that guy's being defensive. <laughs> yeah, he is being defensive. People are attacking him and calling him guilty. And he said, no, I'm innocent. And he's lashing back at them. But even though he's being defensive, he really believes that. He really is saying, no, 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 I am the good guy. I am dedicated to what is right. I have lived a life of honesty and not allowed lies to sit in my spirit. Y'all, some of us need to get lies out a lot faster than we're doing right now. Okay, real quick analogy. Some of us are melancholy personalities in this room, right? So... You'll know that you have a melancholy personality when you kind of feel everything very intensely and it makes you kind of go up and down. It kind of makes you kind of have some dark nights of the soul, right? If you have that kind of stuff, you're a melancholy. Now, melancholies have a really, really hard time seeing their gifts and talents and worth. So I have a couple melancholy people in my family. So uh, Susie and Jill are more melancholy. And then me and Andy, and little Andy, my daughter, is like a mini me, right? She's very, very similar to me. We are what's called a sanguine personality, more of that tigger, bouncy personality. So we're all sitting around, and one of our friends gave us a conversation jar. Anybody know what those are? Conversation jar, you sit them in the middle of your table, and somebody has written a hundred conversation starters right? They're all in the jar. You pull one out and then you kind of all talk about it, right? Around the dinner table. And it said, what are your gifts and talents? Well, it started with Andy and Andy was like, hmm, well, I can dance. I'm singing and I'm on the worship team. I'm funny and I like to enjoy time with my friend and starts listing stuff off. Then it goes to Jill. Jill goes, I don't have any. And then she goes, wait, that's not true. I have good penmanship. <laughs> then we, Andy and I, started explaining all of her gifts and talents. And she was like, oh, that's a good point. Went to me. Went to me. I was like, well, I believe that God gifted me early on with wisdom. I think that there's some leadership stuff. I do preaching and teaching, and I start listing things off. Well, afterwards, we got mom. We got Susie involved in the conversation. And she said, I don't have any. Okay, we then had to remind her, oh, you have this, 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 and we're listing them all off. And she went, oh, yeah, you're right. Okay, here's my point in saying all this. For those of you that are melancholy, 
so the enemy will come in on that and start whispering things to you and say things like, you don't have any gifts and talents, you're not important, you don't matter in this world, who cares whether you're here or not, you, nobody needs you. Those are lies from the pit of hell. And too many of us are letting them sit too long in our spirit because we agree with them. Just because you agree with Satan doesn't make it right. Y'all following me? Get them out of your spirit fast. Some of you remember this old school line. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. All right. Some of you know that. What's the point? Man, a little bit of let's not do that is worth a lot more than a whole lot of let's try to dig out from under it now that we did it. Y'all following me? Here's the point. Chase out the lies early and often. Do not let them sit in your spirit. And you go, well, Pastor Lance, you only say that because you're not a melancholy. Ah, I'm on the other side. Y'all, I'm on the anxious side, right? So I'm over there. I don't know if any of you remember, I wrote a book on freaking out. Yeah? And one of those chapters was called, I hate flying. Oh, I just came back from Hawaii. It's tough to get to Hawaii in a car, right? So uh, on the flight out there, everything seemed kind of relatively cool. Even though I'm freaked out from flying, I was completely fine on the way out. On the way back, I'll make the story short. We're an hour and a half into it, and the pilot said over the loudspeaker, we are entering into extreme turbulence. If a pilot says it's extreme turbulence, it's extreme turbulence right? How does he know that? Because there was a plane in front of us, way ahead of us that had already hit the storm and they radioed back and said, it's really bad. Now it was so bad that for the next three hours, we could not stand up and go to the bathroom. We were all strapped into our seats. The flight attendants were not allowed to go up and down the aisle. And as a matter of fact, the pilot said, flight attendants prepare for landing. Let me explain something about geography. (laughs) Although Sacramento to Maui is the same distance as Sacramento to North Carolina, there is one significant difference in terms of the amount of runways. One is water, one is land. Here's what he meant even though what I heard felt very different. What he meant was flight attendants, go ahead and go through the procedure of locking everything down so nothing moves when the turbulence hits. Lock down all containers, we're not gonna do any services, we don't need any cans falling out or baggage falling out. What he meant was lock everything down and then I need you to go ahead and prepare for landing, get in your seats and lock it down. But here's my point. I don't like flying. (laughs) Y'all, I had my little peace on earth bracelet on. And I was wearing this sucker out, right? I mean, I was praying like crazy. I was praying. I was super creative for all the angels. I was telling them how to lift the plane. I was telling them how to fly ahead of the plane and just break. You know, I'm, I'm trying to tell them the laws of physics. I was like, you know, if you just kind of express that, then we can kind of dive in through. Okay. Anyway, I don't know how irritating that was to them, but they're like, really? You moron. I didn't know that. Here's what was crazy. Now, in our case, 
looking back, all we had was bumps. Why? The pilot came on later and said, as we have moved forward, the storm has moved 150 miles away. He said, we're only on the edge of it. So we only got the edge of it. Now, the plane right in front of us went through the center of it. How is that possible? Sheer grace of God. Now, are we going to say there were no Christians in the first plane? <laughs> no, no, we're not. We're going to say sheer grace of God, but man, here's my point in saying that story. Where do you think my mind wanted to go, you guys? Where could I not allow it to go? That, that's, that's the deal, is we're allowing too many lies to sit in too often and for too long. We've got to root that stuff out quickly. Because we can't get it out later. It starts to stink. All right, let's keep moving forward. It's time for us to live proud of who we are. Not constantly embarrassed about our Christianity. Because here's what I believe. I believe that if we live rightly, we should spend less time in repentance and more time in praise. Because here's the deal. God will call us in to do something like pray for somebody else and we spend the first 20 minutes of it saying i'm not worthy now the true answer is you were never worthy in the first place and it's always the grace of god and that's why you're praying at all but the fact that you are constantly heralding back to the fact that you haven't been taking your faith seriously all the way up to this moment now you're embarrassed about it is not a way to live it would be so awesome if we could just walk into God's works and just start praising him. God, you are good. I've been chasing after you. I'm still a loser, but you know what? You've done great things in me, Lord. And boy, do I love you and my lifestyle proves it. Yeah, fall on? All right, praise the Lord. Let's pick it up in chapter 29, 29, verse 11. 29, verse 11. The first 10 verses, Job says, man, I long for the good old days when I had my children around me. When I was blessed, when people respected me, that was awesome. He said, but I don't understand. All this stuff happens to me. I thought I was a good guy. Verse 11. When the ear heard, it called me blessed. When the eye saw, it approved. Because I delivered the poor who cried for help. And the fatherless who had none to help them. The blessing of him who was about to perish came upon me. And I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy and I searched out the cause of him whom I did not know. I broke the fangs of the unrighteous and I made him drop his prey from his teeth. What did he just say? Is Job cool? Oh, yeah. He supported the poor, the fatherless, the dying, and the widow. He was the safe place. Are you the safe place in your workplace? Are you the safe place at school? Are you the safe place at the store? Are you the safe place wherever you go? You're a Christian. You are the safe place. He said, I've walked in righteousness. I tangibly assisted the blind and the lame to help them do what they could not do. 
But here's the coolest line. I searched out the cause of him who I did not know. And I grabbed the unrighteous and I smashed his mouth and his fangs so he would drop the prey. Job was a man of aggressive social justice. Aggressive social justice. Here's what a lot of us say. Well, that issue, that's not really my issue. I don't really get involved in that. Job said, I didn't even know the guy. It was wrong, and it was on my watch. Therefore, I went after it, and I smashed the enemy until they let the innocent person go. How cool is that? That's a hero, right? No wonder God picked on this guy. You might want to write this down. It's time for the church to fix stuff. It's time for the church to fix stuff. Whether we like it or not, it's our job. It's time for the church to fix stuff. Pick it up in chapter 31, please. Chapter 31, verse 5. Chapter 31, verse 5. Job said this, If I have walked with falsehood, or my foot has hastened to deceit, let me be weighed in a just balance, and let God know my integrity. If my step has turned aside from the way, and my heart has gone after my eyes. If any spot has stuck to my hands, then let me sow and another eat. Let what grows for me be rooted out. Meaning if any way I have been wrong, let me get busted for it. But I'm not wrong. I've been consistently right. There are many of us in this place that we have incredible stories of righteousness periods of time where we're like yep nailed it the problem is they were periods of time whatever happened to consistency whatever happened to and i'm the good guy i'm the good lady all the time write this down Ups and downs are great on roller coasters, not in integrity. Ups and downs are great on roller coasters, but not in integrity. Pick it up in verse 9. I'm just going to read verse 1, then I'll jump to verse 9. Here he speaks of his sexual integrity. I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin wrongly? Verse 9. If my heart has been enticed towards a woman... And I have lain in wait at my neighbor's door. Then let my wife grind for another and let others bow down on her. For that would be a heinous crime. That would be an inequity to be punished by the judges. That would be a fire that consumes as far as Abaddon. And it would burn to the root all my increase. What's his point? Man, if I'm a bad guy inside... I'm a bad guy. <clears throat> let me speak real quick to the gentleman real fast because this whole message is for everybody, but let me speak to the gentleman. Gentlemen, we have always had a, a grand universe question in our minds, which is what do the ladies really want, chocolate or flowers? 
You understand what I'm saying? Like, we've always tried to wonder, is it chocolate or is it flowers, right? Now, I don't want to dishonor chocolate or flowers. I think both of them are awesome. And in no way do I ever want to remove chocolate away from a woman. That would be a terrible idea. However, gentlemen, perhaps the greatest gift you can give a woman is respect. The greatest gift. Amen? Amen? All right. Come on, ladies. You would, I think you would agree with that. Yeah. The greatest gift you can give a woman is respect. That means respect in your heart and respect in your mind. Um, who you are in the darkest place is who you are. You just need to know that. No one knows the depth of your wickedness except for you and God, Right? May we respect women at all times. Go to chapter 31, but now we're in verse 13. He said, if I have rejected the cause of my manservant or my maidservant when they brought a complaint against me, what then shall I do when God rises up? When he makes inquiry, what shall I answer him? Did not he who made me in the womb make him? Did not one fashion us all in the womb? What's his point? I don't care whether or not I'm the boss and they're the servant. We're all the same people. We're all human beings. You may want to write this down. Even the captain of a ship is in the same boat with everyone else. Y'all following me? Even the captain of a ship is in the same boat as everybody else. I don't care if you are the captain. You're not in another place. You're in my ship. We're all in the same place. I'm going to read you some quotes because I don't think we're doing very well in these areas. You may have heard this first one, popular tune from Abraham Lincoln. Four score and seven years ago, you heard this one? Four score and seven years ago, our father brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created what? Equal. Y'all were struggling. We're struggling with that. John Quincy Adams said, democracy, pure democracy, has at least its foundation in a generous theory of human rights. It is founded on the natural equality of mankind. It is the cornerstone of the Christian religion. It is the first element of all lawful government upon earth. Y'all were struggling in this area. MLK famously said, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Y'all, we're struggling in this area. Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor said, society as a whole benefits immeasurably from a climate in which all persons regardless of race or gender, may have the opportunity to earn respect, responsibility, advancement, and remuneration based on ability. Y'all, we're struggling in this area. Sonia Sotomayor said, until we get equality in education, we don't have an equal society. I don't care whether it's education or gender or race. We have to fix stuff. We still have people marching and marching 
and marching to try to get attention from those in power. We are the church of Jesus Christ. It is not all right to view an us and them. We only have an us. Y'all following? Therefore, we have got to watch it in areas of injustice. We must be aggressive and say, not on my watch. We've got to smash the mouth of injustice and make them drop their prey. Amen? Amen. Pick it up in verse 16. 31, 16. He said, if I have withheld anything that the poor desire, or cause the eyes of the widow to fail? If I have eaten my morsel alone and the fatherless has not eaten of it. For from my youth, the fatherless grew up with me as a father. From my mother's womb, I guided the widow. If I have seen anyone perish for lack of clothing or the needy without covering, go to verse 21. If I have raised my hand against the fatherless because I saw my help in the gate, then let my shoulder blade fall from my shoulder. Let my arm be broken from its socket. Verse 24. If I have made gold my trust or called fine gold my confidence, if I have rejoiced because my wealth was abundant or because my hand had found much, verse 28, I would have been false to God above. You see, Job was not just generous. He was an active protector. Okay, write this down. Good people are nice. Great people are effective. Good people are nice. Great people are effective. I think our church is full of good people. I think we intend very well. I think we have a lot of beautiful thoughts in our hearts. What I'm praying for is that we mature into a place of effectiveness that what is in our heart becomes reality. That somehow, some way, we advance the cause of the kingdom of God. That is what we are looking for. We'll close it out in verse 29. If I have rejoiced at the ruin of him who hated me, or exulted when evil overtook him, no, I have not let my mouth sin. By asking for his life with a curse. Verse 37. I would give God an account of all my steps. What is he saying? He's saying I even have to be this way towards my enemies. Write this down. If your Christianity doesn't extend to your enemies, it's not very deep. If your Christianity doesn't extend to your enemies, it's not very deep. You see, even the world loves those who love them. Christianity loves even those who do not love them. Does it matter how we live? It does. It matters to God, does it not? He wouldn't have highlighted this whole thing about Job if it didn't matter to him. It matters to the church and its reputation. It matters how we live. It matters to the world because they're harassed and helpless as sheep without a shepherd. And we're their solution. It matters to them. I close with this. Three keys. Three keys. Write these down. Three keys 
to becoming good people. Three keys to becoming good people. Now, really, I'm trying to say make us better. And so I really wanted to say, here's three steps to becoming gooder. But that's not really a word. So you can name it anything you want, but it's three keys to becoming who we want to be. Real quick. Number one, write this down. We become what we worship. We become what we worship. What does it mean? We are led by our loves. We mold into the image of our heroes. If we want to be more good, we need to fall more in love with the one who is the most good, and that is God. So how do we become more good? We've got to fall in love with Jesus more. That's why. Number two, write this down. Mandatory reflection. Mandatory reflection. If we do not force ourselves into the habit of reflection, both for ourselves and the world around us, we will be doomed to repeat our behavior and continue the spiral. Number three, write this down, intentional living. Intentional living. We must live on purpose, with a purpose in our heart, not just for the long term, which is critical, but for each day. Who do we want to be? What do we want to be like? We've got to set the trajectory because it's not going to happen by accident. You're not going to accidentally become a good person. That's purposeful. Can I have the prayer team come on up here as we close? Here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray. If you are here and you do not define yourself prior to this as a Christian, it is not an accident that you're here. God has been whispering to you since day one. And when I began to preach, you began to say, everything that you're saying sounds right. You're not saying that because I preached it right. You're saying it because God began to have you in a private conversation and he was telling you truth, not me. But if that is happening, today is your day of salvation. Today's your day to be made good that you can live a good life. The only one that can make you good is Jesus Christ. He has to take your old life and your junk your sin, your chosen rebellion, your selfishness. He needs to take that away and put all of his goodness right into your heart. All of his grace, all of his power, all of his freedom, all of his strength. He needs to put all that bright, new, shiny, living, alive spirit power into your chest. If you want that, we're going to pray. For all of us that call ourselves Christians, what is God laying on your heart right now? That he's saying, I'm moving on you. I'm moving on you. You know what we're talking about. I want to pray with you and I need you to come up to this prayer team. We got seven prayer team members all here to pray with you. So please don't leave today without getting some prayer, a breakthrough, encouragement, strengthening. Because remember, church is interactive, right? So this is time to be interactive. Let me close by praying over all of us. Heavenly Father, in this environment where you have been praised and lifted up and glorified in a way that we have now been cast a new vision of wanting to live, not working harder, Lord, but working smarter. Not trying to be something we're not, just trying to be what we really are made to be. God, not trying to perform for your love, but trying to perform because you love us. God, we've got to get those things right. You have not said, be better. God, we have called ourselves that we need to be better. You made us right. 
in Jesus Christ. Lord, there's some of us here that you brought in that prior to this have never defined themselves in a relationship with you. But somehow they know they've never been alone. That was a personal chasing that you have done with them because they matter to you so much. I ask right now in the name of Jesus Christ that you would rescue them, that you would hear their cries, that they would hand you their lives and you would hand them yours. You would do everything that your Bible promised you would do. You would do everything that the cross has bought for them. That Jesus, you would make them new and fresh and they would start their life forgiven right here, right now. And they would be a child of God. Lord, for all the rest of us that do define you as our Lord, that do define you as Christians, God, we've got to be the nicer ones. We've got to be out there bringing your peace. And Lord, we get so wrapped up in our own drama and our own agendas, we keep losing sight. Would you give us the wisdom to stay on track, to keep our sights on you and loving all those you give us? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Have a wonderful weekend. We'll see you next time.